Uh, like to personally thank Phil as I get started this morning for introducing this concept of booing uh, in our church. <laughs> uh, it's hard to, um, well, I guess now I'm living with that fear in, the, in addition to multiple others. Um, I uh, talked to, or actually texted with uh, Justin a couple of times this morning. I think he was making sure I wasn't chickening out. And, uh, but actually, what he asked was that I share his love for this body of Christ. Uh, Justin and Rob Clark are at a missions conference up in Greenville, South Carolina. And this morning, as we're doing this, Justin is preaching at uh, Heritage Bible Church up in Greenville, South Carolina. But he does send his love, and he will be returning uh, next week. One of the things that always seems to be on our mind is this concept of measuring. It seems like it's something that we are always doing. We're always measuring. In the area of physical fitness, we measure our weight. We measure calorie intake. We measure how much we exercise. We measure cholesterol. We measure even our clothing size, whether it's going up or down. In the area of school, we're measured by standardized tests and grades. We're measured by our class position, or at least we compare ourselves to others that way. We even measure our college acceptances compared to other people. In the area of a fashion, we measure ourselves in a very different way. Are we actually keeping up? Uh, several years ago, I started noticing men wearing these shoes, and they were dress shoes, but they had these white sneaker bottoms on the bottom. And very quickly, everybody kind of caught on. And if you didn't have these kind of shoes, you were immediately not measuring up. Finally, we measure ourselves in the area of business. When I think of, I used to be a CPA. And as a CPA, uh, I helped business owners measure uh, their businesses. And not only did they want to measure uh, how they had done their income and their balance sheet and things like that, they also were vastly interested in developing measurements to see where they were going, how their business was going to be uh, developing over the next year. Were they doing better or were they doing worse? We measure ourselves against objective standards. We measure ourselves against ourselves, and we measure ourselves against other people. And hopefully, we measure ourselves against the Scriptures. One of the problems with our measuring is we are often not very objective. I'm thinking of a cartoon that I saw recently of a man standing in front of a mirror. And this man is a middle-aged guy with a slightly balding, slightly overweight. But the image, it shows the image he sees in the mirror, and it's like a virtual Superman, right? He sees himself as better than he actually is. In fact, Studies show that the average man tends to think that they're above average. Well, we know that can't be. <laughs> the reality is measuring is a constant, and measuring the right things can serve us really well. As a church, we've been thinking about this idea of measuring uh, in, within this local body of Christ. Uh, as believers in Christ, we are to be actively growing in our spiritual maturity, in our sanctification, in our Christ-likeness. But how do you measure those things? 
We even refined that definition in our church and broke it down to more precise components of spiritual maturity. And we called it delighting in Christ, serving his bride and advancing the gospel. All of those things are awesome components of what it means to be developing in spiritual maturity. But how do you measure delight? How do you measure the response to our belief in growing in Christ? How do you do that? One scripture informs us on these measurements and tells us how to, uh, how to consider this, and he calls it stewardship. It's one of the measurements that we should be considering, and it's what's what we are going to be centering on this morning. We're going to be in Matthew 25 this morning, and as we turn there, I ask you to just listen to the context of what's going on in, as we come up to that passage, because the context of this is really, really important to understand. Uh, way back in Matthew 16, 21, uh, the, the narrative kind of changes, and it says, at that time forward, and that even affects us now in Matthew 25, but in Matthew 16, 21, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Eventually, he arrives in Jerusalem with his entourage of disciples and chapter 23 finds Jesus in the temple. And when he's there, it's, it's called the seven woes. He is condemning the scribes and the Pharisees and even Israel. He tells his disciples of the coming destruction of the temple. And in chapter 24, he begins to privately answer the disciples' questions about when these things would happen and what would be the sign of Jesus' return. And so Jesus begins to teach his disciples about the end of the age. He informs them that only the Father knows when he will return but he uses the opportunity to instruct them on how they should conduct themselves as they await for his return. And he does so through a series of parables. And in those parables, he tells them things like that they should be ready, that they should be vigilant, that they should be faithful and prepared. But beginning at our text this morning in verse, chapter 25 and verse 14, he gives them a parable lesson on how they should behave while they await for his return that creates for us a very good system of measurement. It is the parable of talents, and the matter at hand is the matter of stewardship. So let's read from our passage together, uh, or I'll read it, not together, Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. beginning at verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another one, or two, and two to another. And each according to, I'm sorry, I'm going to start over. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, 
and he made five talents more. He also, who had the two talents, made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents, and I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And then he who had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who had ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As I was preparing the sermon, I read through a, a method for teaching um, a parable, and that method's called the SPA method, S-P-A. And that method means that you tell the story, and you make sure the story is clear, then you make the point of the story, and then you make applications from that point. So in this case, uh, the story is fairly straightforward. We have a master who is going on a long journey, and as he is going on that journey, he entrusts his assets to multiple servants. Uh, he gives one five, two, and one talent. And the first two, the one that received five and two, took their money, and they uh, put it at risk. They invested it. They put it to work and they were able to double their money. And upon the master's return, where an accountability was held, those uh, two servants were deemed faithful uh, for the work that they had done. But there was a third servant who was given a talent, and that servant uh, did not invest the money. He, he put a hole in the ground and buried it. Uh, and he uses the reasoning that he was afraid of the master. So on the return, of the master to, to measure uh, what that servant has done, uh, he's deemed unfaithful because of how he understood the master and his responses to him. And he was cast out, says in the parable, into the utter darkness. So to understand that parable, it is really 
important for us to understand uh, the context again. What Jesus is doing when he's giving this parable. What's he trying to communicate? And Jesus is in the process of informing his disciples on how they should behave while he's gone. On what they should be doing as they await his return. In other words, Jesus is explaining in very practical terms what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. So what is the point? Here's the point. True followers of Jesus are to be using the resources that God entrusted to them to bring glory to their God. Let me say that again. True followers of Jesus are to be using the resources that God entrusted to them to bring glory to their God. There is much we can pull from this parable, much that we can personally consider. So for the rest of our time, what we're going to do is I'm going to look at five observations from this passage. Uh, There are five things I want to pull from it. And as we go, we'll be pulling application along the way. How do we apply this to, to, to our own lives? So let's begin our five observations from the parable of talents. Observation number one. The master's property is entrusted to his servants. The master's property is entrusted to his servants. What we have is really not ours. It has been entrusted to us as stewards, as stewards. So what what in the world is a steward? A steward in the ancient world was a person who was given the responsibility and authority to rule over the affairs of a household. Therefore, the steward's responsibility was to use the resources of the household um, for the benefit of the head of the household. Now, invariably, the steward benefited from those resources. It was impossible not to. But the steward's benefit wasn't the point. The point was the master of the house and accomplishing his will, accomplishing his goal. So as stewards, it would be good for us to consider all that God has entrusted to us so that we can in turn bring glory back to him. In fact, if you are taking notes this morning, it would be good for you to make a list, just a quick list. So I will begin naming some categories of things that are entrusted to us, and you can in turn put some legs on those categories, add to them uh, personally. You know, how does this fit you? The first area would be in the area of money and material possessions, all right? That's the obvious one, uh, even from our parable. Uh, What does that include? That includes your bank accounts, your savings accounts. That includes retirement accounts and investment accounts. That includes businesses that you own. That includes your home, your cars, your household possessions. That includes everything that you could turn into something tangible that you could put in your hands. That, that this room is full of that. The second one is in the area of time and energy. Each one of us is given a number of days, and we're each given waking hours with energy where we expend those days. We spend them doing something. That time, that energy is God-given, and we are to be stewards of it. 
Another area is talents and gifting. When I look across, in fact, I was thinking of it when the singing was going on. The talent and gifting in this church is unbelievable. We have gifts of knowledge. We have gifts of teaching. We have gifts of, account of, or of, of administration. We have gifts of social gifts are just tremendous here, of people that have the ability to influence uh, the people around them. We have gifts of connection. We have just a tremendous amount of gifts as we look across the membership like this. It's, it's just quite amazing. There's also the, the uh, stewarding of people and relationships. And very much the same, each of us are given relationships and people that we touch, that we're connected to, that we have the opportunity to impact, whether that be our children, grandchildren, parents, uh, church members, um, neighbors, coworkers, goes on and on. It's endless, uh, the amount of people. We could go on and on with categories because they keep on going, things that have been entrusted to us. It would even include things like hardships and loss because even that we are to be stewarding for the Lord and for His glory. But this passage seems to be focused on those positive, tangible things uh, that we've been given. What I find in my own life and the people I know is often we are really good at manipulating the truth here to intellectually acknowledge that God is the creator and he owns it all is not a difficult leap for most of us. But to live that out, to live that truth out, to embrace it at the very core of our being is another matter. Deep down in my heart of hearts, at my very center, do I truly see my money my possessions, my time, my energy, my talents, and the people God has placed before me as something God, uh, as something that God gave to me, or as something I developed, I earned, I made, I deserve, and therefore something I enjoy for the benefit of me, because it's mine. There's a study that's gone on with the game of Monopoly. And what they do is they get a group of people into a room, and these people have to play the game of Monopoly, but they manipulate the rules. And what they do is they give one guy twice as much money, they give him twice as much when he passes go, and they uh, allow him to roll two dice where everybody else only gets to roll one when it's his turn. So invariably, as the game progresses, uh, the guy with all the advantages wins. But that's not what they're analyzing. What they're analyzing is, is, is his attitude as he's winning. And invariably, he tends not to attribute his win to the double roll of the dice or the extra money. He tends to apply his win to his trading ability or his choice of properties that he earned, where we know that's really not true. Once we plant the seed that we earned it, that we built it, that we developed it, we take ownership of it. And just as a principle, ownership as opposed to stewardship is a really dangerous place to rest our hearts. Instead, our hearts should be firmly planted with truth like Job's understanding that it's the Lord that gives and it is no problem for him to take it away. Or the imagery from Jeremiah 18 where you see the potter 
working with his clay. And as that potter is building up that pot, it's nothing for the potter to flick it and destroy it. That's the position that we're in. The master owns it all. So restated, our first position is that stewardship is that of stewardship as opposed to ownership. God has entrusted what he owns to us. Our second observation is equally important. The second observation is the entrustment is significant. The entrustment is significant. First, let's look at this observation from the perspective of the economics of man. How do you think it felt to be the guy that just received one talent? I know if we went out and studied what a talent is, we'd all say, well, that's a lot of money too. But it's not possible for us as humans not to look around and we say, wait a minute, the other guy got two and the other guy got five, I only got one. That's normal. King Charles' coronation ceremony is coming. And it's been determined that when he's coronated, he's going to be crowned with Prince Edward's crown, or St. Edward's crown, which has been in the British monarchy since 1661, and it's valued at as much as $57 million. And that's just one piece in a really broad collection. When we hear things like that, lavish things, it becomes hard for us to see that what has been entrusted to us is actually valuable. We live in an upscale coastal community that attracts the successful, where the average home are deep into six-figure values and the average cars seem to cost more than our parents paid for their houses. We get worn down by cost of living and there are times when we are conditioned into thinking we're merely just making it or just surviving. But the reality is, we are all one percenters. We are much more wealthy than anyone else in the world. And the world looks at us and says, wow, these guys have been entrusted to a lot. Even the most basic amongst us has more than the entire world around us. We are truly, truly blessed financially. But secondly, let's take a look at this idea from the perspective of the economics of God. This is different. From the parable, what's rewarded? It's faithfulness that's rewarded. Faithfulness with the things that God has entrusted to you. Therefore, in the eyes of God, what we have is extremely significant. And it's significant because... Uh, he gave it to you to bring glory back to himself. While some are, we are not called to bring glory to our Lord from a position of poverty. We are bringing glory to our Lord from a position of wealth. So, restated, our second observation is that we, or that what has been entrusted to us is significant, and it certainly is. It's significant for sure because we are all very, very wealthy. But that doesn't matter. It's significant in God's eyes because what he gave to you, he gave to you for a purpose. And that was to bring glory back to himself. And that makes what's been entrusted to you super significant. Our third 
application, or our third observation, is uh, also important. And that is the talents that we're given or the, the resources that we're provided are to be used and risk is to be taken to bring glory to the master. Our talents are to be used and risk is to be taken to bring glory to the master. From our parable, this is the expectation of the master and it was and it is what was rewarded. It is very hard for us, just in our gut understanding of capitalism and ownership, to understand the principle of stewardship. You taking the resources that God entrusted to you and simply using them to build more resources is not a good understanding of God's economy. He owns it all. So, what difference does it make if you use your giftedness to increase your holdings simply for the sake of increasing your holdings? Whether it be money or skill or relationship, he owns it all, whether or not it's in your control. He owns it. God's economy is an economy of souls, and the New Testament is filled with what brings glory to him. Think of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Or we could look at Ephesians. There's plenty of these verses, but look at Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. It says, and he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of stat and stature of the fullness of Christ. And so... We use the resources provided to us to reach the world with the gospel and to bring believers in Christ to spiritual maturity. Now, I can almost hear an argument developing, and that argument is someone saying, wait a minute, doesn't God want me to enjoy his creation? Doesn't, um, and hasn't he given that to me for that reason as well? Well, let me say this. I have two arguments in response to that thought. One, I am not certain, I can't make the mental leap that us enjoying God's creation and us employing what he's entrusted to us is in conflict. It seems as though those two things should be in agreement. But secondly, it seems to me that this isn't what we struggle with. <laughs> we don't struggle with enjoying what he's entrusted to us. We're good at it. But what we do struggle with is the concept of truly risking, truly risking our entrustments for the opportunity to bring glory to God. So what does this look like? What does it look like to take risk? Let's talk about that for a minute. You know, finances are an easy place to talk about this because they're so tangible and it can be counted so easily. So let's talk about giving. Um, and in fact, let's compare uh, what we give 
to a couple of different standards that exist in Scripture. First, the standard of the Old Testament. The standard of the Old Testament was the tithe. And if I were to take a poll across this uh, membership, this congregation, most people would suggest, oh yeah, the tithe, that's 10%. But that's actually not true. Uh, when you look at uh, Israel and the Old Testament law, there were actually three tithes that they were responsible for. And the total of those tithes equaled nearly 24%, 24%. But that doesn't count because we live in New Testament times. And in New Testament times, that's all changed and we're supposed to now give from the heart. And when you compare or when you build that idea of giving from the heart and you add to it this idea of stewardship and that these assets were entrusted to us, suddenly you come to a conclusion that the question shouldn't no longer be, how much should I give? But the question should be, how much should I keep? How much should I keep? So let's look at this again from, that, from the concept of faith Bible church giving. Let's get really uh, down to earth here. Uh, when you look across the board at faith Bible giving, and to make the, the, the uh, comparison work, you'd take out the, the outliers, the people that just give an incredible amount to the ministry here. And if you just take the, the average of us that, that are regularly giving to the church, what you'll come up with is a giving amount, an annual giving amount that averages in the three to $4,000 range. That's just average, and it's not really even difficult math. So if you take that three or $4,000 range and say, okay, what is the average income in a body like this amongst those same people? And I would venture a guess that in a congregation like this, that the average income is just north of $100,000 a year. I don't think that's a real stretch. So when you put those two things together, the average giving at Faith Bible Church is in the 3% range, 3% range. And so I ask, is that risk? Now, what you guys are thinking is that I'm saying the obvious answer is no. But the reality is, is I don't know. And this sermon has to be very, very personally applied. We can't apply it globally. I don't know what you guys give to. People give to all kinds of things. I don't know what you do with your money and how you invest it for the Lord. All I know is that statistic, and it's, and it's given only for you to consider your broad part in using the assets entrusted to you for the will of God. So, what does it look like? What does risk look like? I have a couple of examples. Uh, the first example is a guy uh, maybe some of you have heard of. His name is Stanley Tam. Stanley Tam, just to let you know, he wrote a book called God Owns My Business. And he started a business called United States Plastics Corporation. And he took that corporation, and over time, he donated the entire corporation to a nonprofit organization whose purpose was to distribute the profits of United States Plastics Corporation to worldwide missions, worldwide ministry. That's what he did. Right? That, is an, uh, that is an example of taking risk. I got another one for you. It's much closer to home. Uh, we have a guy that's been at this church multiple times. He lives up in the Sarasota area, Tampa area. His name's Jesse Gill. And Jesse Gill works for Global Serve Initiative. And uh, I had the privilege of having Jesse stay at my house one night during a conference. 
and we got talking. And Jesse's story is interesting because Jesse was a missionary to an unreached people group in a really undesirable location. All right, so what Jesse did is he made a determination to uh, dedicate one to two decades of his life to going to another place to build a church where there were no churches, to establish a church where there were no churches, to uh, encourage people in the gospel, to baptize them into a local church. And that's what he did. He spent nearly 15 years in a foreign land that wasn't an easy place to live. And to be baptized in that land was a significant thing because what it meant was you were being disowned from your family. So as we were talking, I said, Jesse, was that hard? Like, was it as hard? Like, you imagine this to be difficult, right? Was it, was it like you thought? And he shook his head. He even got teary-eyed. And he said, Mitch, he said, it was more difficult than I could have ever guessed. He said, the toll on my family over that time was tremendous. In fact, we still have consequences of that time uh, together. But he didn't stop. He didn't let me rest there. He then got this gigantic smile on his face. And he said, but the benefits, what happened there, like made it all worth it. He said, you can't believe what it was like to see these people come to Jesus. And now even more, now that I'm gone, to see these people thrive in a local church and their church actually growing when our team isn't present anymore. He said, it's, it's an amazing thing and the benefits way outweighed the cost. The problem with those examples is I don't want to leave us with the opinion that unless you go serve on a foreign mission field or you give your entire business to a nonprofit organization, you're really not being a good steward of what's been entrusted to you. That's not true. So let's talk really practically about what it looks like for this membership to exercise good stewardship. Let's talk about it first in the area of small groups. Every year around August, uh, this church develops uh, new small groups. So announcements made, somebody comes up here and says, hey, small group, sign up. And you get a choice uh, to which, what small group you want to join. How we think about that is important. So as I'm sitting in my pew considering small groups, do I say to myself, hmm, I'm going to hold out and see how these groups develop because I want to make sure I get in a good one. I want to make sure I get in one that, that's going to be good for me or has the kind of friendships that I want. Or do I look and say, I want to get in a small group where I can actually minister, where they might need me. It might not be the most comfortable. It might be an extra drive, but that group needs me. How do I think about something like that? How about in an area of church planting? You've been hearing rumors over the last year that we are working and thinking about the idea of planting a church. Well, as we do that, eventually an announcement's going to be made, and we're going to say, hey, interest meeting time for a new church uh, that's going to develop somewhere. At that point, what do you do? Do you say, eh, I prefer to stay with the mothership. It's much more comfortable here. Or do I say, wow, this is an opportunity to risk. This is an opportunity to minister. Do I wait and first see who's going to make sure there are people I actually like? Or do I wait or do I invest knowing that I can be a minister 
in uh, that environment. How about the idea of just simply having someone over? When I have someone over to my house, how do I think about stewarding my assets that way? Do I think about, well, who's going to be the most fun for Mitch? Or do I think, or do I open the church directory and say, I wonder who's lonely? I wonder who might need to come over to my house. Uh, how do we think about those things is really an indicator of what we're doing with our stewardship. So, as you consider your possessions, your time, your energy, your giftedness, and your relationships, and taking risks with them for God's glory, you will find many opportunities, both in your individual walk with Jesus and in great opportunities here at Faith Bible Church. This is a growing ministry, and so just in the fact that the ministry is growing, there are dynamic ministry opportunities that are available, both organically, what you do individually, and collectively, what we do as a body. There's going to be more help needed as we continue to move forward. We don't have a lot of room for more people to come here either. The church is growing, and there is talk that we need to somehow expand the space so more people can attend church here. That creates opportunity for this membership to give to a new building, to a new addition, to whatever they're going to do to make sure that we have more space to minister to the people that are here. I mentioned church planning, but that creates lots of opportunity, either to go or to give, because those things cost money as well. How about in the area of missions? Our missions uh, is building and changing here at Faith Bible Church because we are working to get to the point where we are sending people or teams actually to a foreign country, to an unreached people group. And we're not just sending them, we are their senders. We are going to be their sending church. And that changes everything because it not cre only creates uh, financial obligation or financial responsibility, but it creates caring responsibility as well. This membership is going to have to care for those people that we send. What's interesting is, is when we talk about these things, these things are absolutely natural when we think about many areas of our life. When we think about sacrificing physically, we do that naturally. We exercise, we buy health insurance, we make wellness investments. We don't think anything of it. Or for our financial good, we give money to our retirement plan, to business investments. We even go into debt to get degrees so that we can earn money. We think of risk that way very simply. This is all really personal, I know, but it is certainly worthy of our thought in our own life, in our consideration for how am I stewarding the assets that's God provided, that's, that God's provided for me. So, uh, are we to be using and risking, so we are to be using and risking our entrustments for the glory of God. And our next observation reveals just how important that is. And our third observation, or my fourth observation is this, uh, that the stewards are accountable uh, for the master's entrustment. The stewards are accountable for the master's entrustment. In our parable, the master returns and evaluates the actions of his stewards. This evaluation was not nuanced or difficult. The actions of the stewards were obvious. In our scripture reading this morning, um, 
We read the passage immediately following this parable of talents account. And, in, and that uh, was an account of the final judgment. In that coming judgment, God separates people into two groups, like sheep and goats, and, and puts them across from each other. And each group is measured or judged by just one thing. They are measured by what they did and didn't do. That's what they're measured by. Here at Faith Bible Church, we teach that we are saved by grace through faith. We often refer to that idea as belief or trust. It is not just an acknowledgement that something is true, but it is a reliance on it. The reliance on the fact that a holy God made provision for you and me to be forgiven and therefore in right standing before him. This is so significant that it should have an earth-shattering effect, impact on our lives. One of those is that we will ever be seeking to delight in Christ. We focus on that hard here. We're always encouraging each other in our delight for Christ and working on that, preaching on that. But true faith cannot stop there. We are to be growing in our delight for Christ. If we are to be growing in our delight for Christ, it must result in action. Action that involves caring for his people and action that involves sharing the good news of salvation with those that desperately need to hear that message. So how is that action measured? About a year ago, I was uh, at my son and daughter-in-law's house and I was helping them put up handles on, they had just got new kitchen cabinets and I was helping them put handles up on those cabinets. Well, if you don't do that right, they look really bad. They're immediately, like you notice when they're crooked. And so it wasn't my house. I was being extra careful to make sure they're straight. I had a template. And, and the first one like took forever. Second one was a little faster. And I got better at it as I went to the point where when I was almost done, I was just zipping those handles up, right? And so I got close to the end and uh, I actually finished. And I looked up and I'm standing back and enjoying my good work. And I look at my daughter-in-law and you know how you look at somebody's face and you can tell something's wrong? <laughs> so I look and I kind of see where she's looking and I look and one of the handles is like way off. Like it's like, eh. Um, one of the, and, and so I look like, how in the world did I do that? Like, but it was, it, and my point is, is that it was obvious. It was easy. It wasn't hard to see. And so is the case of the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Their belief was measured by their actions, and their actions were obvious. It didn't take a measuring stick, and it wasn't a value judgment. And in the parable of the talents, it's much the same. The servant's faithfulness could be easily measured by what they did with the resources that were entrusted to them. The servant's actions revealed their belief in the master. So yes, we are accountable to God for how we use the things that he has entrusted to us. And the judgment of that will be easy. This makes our fifth observation seem rather obvious. That is, choosing anything but the glory of the Father is utter foolishness. To put it in a modern context, 
What employee would purposefully and knowingly defy what they knew that their boss wanted them to do? Who would do that? What employee would not do his best for the person who is paying them and who has the authority to promote them or to fire them? The disappointing truth to employers everywhere is that all too often, employees don't put their best foot forward and are not seeking the best for their boss. So, if it's ridiculous to consider the actions, those kind of actions before a fallible employer, how, in, how ridiculous is it if you do it before an infallible God? It's utter foolishness. Several weeks ago, Justin preached uh, from John, beginning at John 12, 37. And in that, he noted Jesus' words that some people choose to believe. And those are folks that make the conscious choice not to follow Jesus. The cost is too high. The consequence too great. Part of that cost is the reality that the followers of Jesus will use their resources to bring glory to their Lord and Savior. And these people won't be doing that. Second category, some cannot believe. This is a danger of that first position. Eventually, as a result of choosing not to believe, their hearts become hardened, and they have no choice but to use the resources in their control for their own purpose and glory. And some believe. We know that, that action follows belief. Therefore, these are the folks that use their lives and their resources for the glory of the Father. Anything else doesn't make sense. All of that leads to some important considerations regarding where each of us stand. Uh, this was a very difficult message. Well, they all are for me. <laughs> but this was a very difficult message for me to prepare. Um, it's not that the text is difficult, because it's not. It's actually pretty straightforward. But the reality is that we all have so much. And that just seems to make the issue harder for some reason. I don't know why being given more tends to make us hold on tighter. But often I think that's what happens. But when I look at all that we have been entrusted with and think of the full potential this body has to individually and collectively serve his people and spread his gospel, it really is quite an amazing thing to think about. So I want to think about this passage in three terms, in, in terms of three different groups. Uh, you may have heard these words this morning and think, um, wow, <laughs> I've never heard this before. This following Jesus stuff is new to me. And maybe it even sounds important to you for the very first time. I would encourage you not to let that thought go, but to find there's multiple people around here that will be standing in the back. Find me if you want. And uh, let's talk about that because it's a significant and important decision. Some on the other end of the spectrum may hear these words this morning and say, you know what, thank you for the encouragement to keep on keeping on. 
my mind and heart are pointedly directed towards my Lord, and I find myself using and risking what God has entrusted to me for the sake of God's glory and not my own. Yes, I live in a community, and yes, it costs a lot of money to live here. But I use my resources and focus them on glorifying my Lord. Thanks for the encouragement to keep going. That's the second group. But there's this third group, and it says, you know what? In the core of my heart, I know I need to make an adjustment here. These people know they are a follower of Jesus, but they also know that their hearts are not directed toward him to the point of stewarding all they have to bring glory through the delighting in Christ, serving his bride, and spreading the gospel. So what I'd ask from that group is that you do a detailed evaluation. We made four categories. There's more. We talked about money and material possessions. We talked about time and energy. We talked about talents and gifting, and we talked about relationships. How much are you using and risking those things for the spread of the gospel and to encourage his people towards Christ's likeness? Dig deep here, and don't let your thinking be manipulated. And an excellent time to be thinking about this is right now, because we are about to enter a time of communion, uh, meal, or communion meal together, where we can consider our salvation and our response to it. So let's pray, let's pray together as we get ready for that. Father, I thank you uh, for this body of Christ. Father, I thank you for all uh, that you've given to us. And I thank you for the opportunity we have to turn back and use it for your glory. Father, I pray that that would be true in minds of each one here. And to the extent it's not, I pray that there would be conviction and that where uh, our heart is not leading us in that direction, I pray that our actions would lead our heart, that we would make obvious moves towards using what's been entrusted to us for your glory, and that in turn, that would turn our hearts toward more delight in our Savior. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.